the night was March 21st, 2003, and we were glued to our television sets as we watched how a CNN, uh, the news network in the U.S., had placed a camera over the modern city of Baghdad. It was warm, there was palm trees, and you could see kind of a silhouettes. And we had never seen anything like this. A modern warfare, uh, the theater of war on national television. We watched as the U.S. military commenced their shock and awe campaign to capture Saddam Hussein and to find weapons of mass destruction. And uh, you can just imagine the night lit up with explosions, just uh, buildings exploding into into just um, dust and uh, these laser guided bombs from the warplanes above and then the tracer explosives sent up from the Iraqi Defense Forces as a response from the ground. Shock and awe, which as one um, writer that I studied says, technically it's known as rapid dominance. It's a tactic devised by the U.S. military in the, the uh, middle 1990s and it's based on the use of overwhelming power and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and um, destroy their will to fight. It's OP. It's overpowering. I can't imagine how the NP's perception of the battlefield um, and then the citizens on the ground, how they must have felt. I bet they wondered whether the U.S. was coming to liberate or to occupy them. I'll let you determine the answer to that question, but my point is that down through the centuries, the citizens of a losing country are at the mercy of those who are overwhelmed and those who are defeated are wondering, are they going to become oppressed or liberated? Often it's the former rather than the latter. Most of us on the short end of the stick in wartime feel the stick being uh, used on their backs. Today I'm not giving you a lesson in military history, but a reminder that there's one who liberates and occupies us, but it all is all for our good. This reminder comes from another night vision that the prophet Zechariah records in the book of Zechariah. And in a year when 2020 feels like the greatest shock and awe period of our lifetime, it seems as though it's just one catastrophe after another exploding into our lives and we have no idea um, whether each blast will mean emancipation or enslavement. Most, if not all of us, feel a malaise in the present and uncertainty about the future. In these dark times, we need a vision of hope. I was talking to Pastor Steve Adams this week and he remarked how this world seems ungovernable. And yet, what we will discover is that there's someone who governs that is worth submitting ourselves to, and that is the Lord God. His occupation in our lives is a welcome and loving presence. Let's read more about the night visions that he gave to Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 13. Please turn in your Bibles if you have a hard copy of God's Word, or turn on your Bibles. You can Google this and um, read along with me. Zechariah. You could even pause if you're watching this um, and, uh, and want to just uh, read it yourselves. That's great. Zechariah chapter 1 verses 18 and then going through the end of chapter 2. I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. 
And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, who you dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent to me the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall declares, and, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as a portion of his holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. If I was going to summarize these two visions given to Zechariah by the Lord, I would say this. God is a conqueror and occupier, but not an oppressor. God's going to demolish all the nation's strength. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God in the physical form of Jesus Christ will come back someday to defeat his enemies and dwell with his people? Pastor Kyle reminded us from Zachariah's first night vision that Jesus would someday come victoriously riding on a red horse, bringing justice to this dark world. This singular belief of Jesus' return may be the last strain of hope that you're holding on to. The strain of hope can be strengthened by five promises that we find in this passage. And I'm adapting these promises from Dr. Walter Kaiser. The first promise is found in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Again, it says, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. God, here's the promise. First promise. God promises to demolish those that scatter his people. God promises to demolish those who scatter his people. To come to this conclusion, we must understand the vision of the horns and the craftsmen. Now, the horns uh, represent pride and, and strength. I know not all of us are around animals with horns, whether they be domesticated or wild animals. Many of us live in the city. But we can't, most of us comprehend that a horn, whether on a rhinoceros or a bison or a big bull you see in the rodeo, it's there to weaponize the animal's strength. In fact, the bigger the horn, 
the bigger the pride. The four horns in Zechariah's vision, I believe, symbolized the strength of four nations, or better yet, four empires. One scholar says, puts it this way, many, including Jerome and the early church fathers, interpreted the four horns to, four horns to be the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Modern scholars set the four, see the four horns as the four directions from which opposition comes. A totality of oppositions is like all four winds, the perfect storm coming against you. Well, where are we getting this interpretation? We should use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so we find uh, another prophet who lived just prior to the time of Zechariah by the name of Daniel, who had a vision of horns from a ram and a goat. The angel Gabriel explained to Daniel in Daniel 8, 20-21 that the ram's horns were the kings of Media and Persia, whereas the goat horns would be the king of Greece. And so we know from church history and just from history that to follow, the next kingdom to follow was Greece. And after that was the Roman Empire that was in power for a long time, even up until the time where Jesus was on the earth and beyond. So using this interpretation of Zechariah's vision of the four horns, being the ancient, ancient empires, was an already not yet prophecy. Meaning that some of the fulfillment had already occurred in Zechariah's day during the times of the Medo-Persians, but there was still to come, the Greeks and the Romans. So let's talk about the four craftsmen. They come into the picture. At first, maybe you were confused as I was, why God would send craftsmen after these horns. I mean, when I think of craftsmen, I think of craftsmanship. And I wondered, are the craftsmen going to make these horns into some artistic carving? You know, like you've seen those, especially up here in Canada, you see those like soapstone carvings that um, the Inuit people and the Northern people, Aboriginal people um, make. They're wonderful, they're, they're beautiful. But these craftsmen in the scripture are more like the constructors we are praying for that are on our property here at 400 Holiday and Drive as we recreate our property during the what we call the Master's Plan 4.0. The craftsmen in Zechariah's vision first had to tear down before they could build up, which is why I never fully understood this truth until our building project. As we all know, you can destroy in a day what took a long time to build. Check out this picture of a, of a wrecking ball knocking down the walls of our building. The fact that craftsmen have to damage a structure first should not have been lost to me. I mean, I've seen enough fixer-upper shows, thanks to my wife, where Chip Gaines' favorite day in the renovation project is Demo Day. Because that's the day you get to smash things. And guys, we like to use our strength yeah, to uh, destroy things at times, don't we? Well, God uses things and people to discipline his people, but to also demolish the pride and strength of nations, especially those that persecute his people. And as Dr. Walter Kaiser reminds us, God's craftsmen seem to move slowly, but they're constantly at work and move relentlessly onward in their work of destroying each other's predecessor. This vision thus teaches that for every enemy that's raised up against God's people, God graciously raises up a counterpart to destroy and then rebuild. And Canadian theologian Mark Bode declares God's first priority is to return to Jerusalem to rebuild her and to bring prosperity. The second vision Zechariah receives is that night 
that night was to offer a revelation of what precedes that rebuilding project, and that's the smashing of power of the nations. In other words, God promises to demolish those that scatter his people. Of course, God's purposes are not sidelined when his people are sidelined. When you scatter God's people, you scatter God, the gospel seed. Persecutors of the church have never learned this. And it's, it's been true for millennia. Think about the Babylonia exile. When God's people were carted off to Babylon and the Babylonians and their successors, the Persians, um, had these Jews in their land, they inadvertently didn't understand that God was actually sending witnesses to these, these nations, these pagan nations, in the form of an exile named Daniel and his friends. Can you name his friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then think about, there's also Esther and Nehemiah who went before the kings. So whenever God's people are exiled, it actually turns into good for those that were the exilers because they actually get a gospel witness. I mean, think about this. This is true in the New Testament in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Describes the persecution of the church and how the Jews had to leave Jerusalem. And they God used this to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations outside Israel's borders. See, God is not just disciplining the nations. He's discipling the nations. And God tears down. What God tears down, he also builds up. If he disciplines you and I, he's discipling us at the same time. And discipline is the hardest act of love. But recall Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And this leads us to the second promise found in Zechariah 2, 1 through 10. That second promise was found in, is found in this statement. God's dwelling with and passionate protection of his people. The promise takes the form of another version, uh, a vision of God's dwelling with and passionate protection of his people. And that, that, that other vision is found in chapter 2. This vision begins with a man uh, with a measuring line in his hand. And Zechariah didn't know what this man was measuring. So he asked the angel to explain it to him. And the angel said in verse 2 of chapter 2, to measure Jerusalem to see what it's width and what is its length. You know the old saying, right? Um, measure twice, cut once. Measuring is really important when you're building. I know I've I've tried to do some handy work, and uh, I messed up and not got exactly the right measurements. And so measuring is really important. But look at verse four. Then another angel shows up with a message for the young man in verse four. And, and it says this, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. In other words, Jerusalem was bursting with people. This is an echo of the prophecy in Isaiah that gave nearly 200 years ago earlier in Isaiah 49, 19 through 20. Look at it. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated, devastated land, surely now you shall be too narrow for your inhabitants and those swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. 
We have many desolate places today, like our family. Um, visited Chicago this summer and the streets were empty due to the pandemic. Here's an application for us. I'm praying that the empty places in our church building would once again become crowded. I mean, safely crowded with social distance. I don't say that because I want to have a bigger church and become famous. I've already been in a large church. I've served in a large church. What I see is important and healthy is to have presence with one another and celebrating our great God. The lack of proximity is one of the toughest obstacles during this pandemic. I dare say the most famous walled city in the world today is Jerusalem. Nehemiah, as we studied, helped rebuild the walls for the people's protection. And though parts of Nehemiah's wall that was built like 2,500 years ago and they're still around, if, we, if I was able to take you to Jerusalem today, we could see those walls. There will come a time when the Lord himself will become the wall. Can you imagine that? That's the promise. Look at verse 5 of Zechariah 2. It says, And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the, her glory in her midst. Wow. This is one of the most beautiful and comprehensive promises in the Old Testament, as one scholar says. And, and literally, it makes me want to break out in Martin Luther's famous psalm. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Wow. God was calling his people back to Jerusalem from the land of the north, and he would provide protection. The absence of those walls reflects the confidence of its ruler in his unlimited power and authority. Amen? My dad used to love to quote this verse 6 as his reason to leave Canada and go to Florida for the winter. Can you imagine he'd use that? He'd say, flee the land of the north and as we packed up to head to sunny Florida. But as verses 7 and 8 make it clear that God's people were to escape to Zion who dwell with the daughter of Babylon for thus the Lord of hosts after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye wow for thus said the Lord of hosts after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Israel as the apple of God's eye meant he had the softest place in his heart for her. Sort of how I love all of you, but the apple of my eye in our church is my wife and my children. And when these nations harmed God's people, you can imagine, they were in reality touching the deepest and dearest part of Yahweh himself. Never forget, forget that if people harm you as the children of God, they will have to deal with our Father God someday. This truth will help you not to take matters in your own hands when others hurt you. And we know that you can be included in this truth because of the next promise of the Lord, which is found in verse 11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. Like, wow. This third promise is that God joins all of his people, both Jew and Gentile. This promise is fulfilled by God's Son, Jesus Christ, who could personally say, And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord has been sent to you. Did you realize that? You're not alone. 
So recapping, not only will God demolish all those that scatter his people and he will dwell with and passionately protect his people, but he joins all his people, both Jew and Gentile, who come to him. However, our great God is not done yet. In verse 12, we find another promise by God. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. God will take possession of Jerusalem once again. That's the fourth promise. God will take possession of Jerusalem once again. It's like somebody who returns to their home after being on vacation or living elsewhere. God was saying, I'm coming home. Someday, church, this is glorious. We will live in Canada. We will all live in Jerusalem and there will be glory in our midst. And that brings me a lot of comfort because I got to tell you, for 14 years, I've been planning to take my family to the Holy Land with the hope that I'd be able to show them all the sites and just let the Bible come alive to them. And we've been planning and saving and had bought our tickets, booked our hotel rooms, and then COVID-19 hit and we weren't able to go in August. And my, attitude, my wife's attitude was great. She said this, if I don't get to go to Jerusalem in this life, I will go to the new Jerusalem in the next life. That's the attitude we should have. Before, we live, before that day happens, we need to find the final promise of God in verse 13. And verse 13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The final promise that shows God is conquer and occupy our life is that God will judge the entire world at the second coming of Christ. Do you believe that? All will be silent. None of us will speak. None of us will be able to make our case why we should be granted access to heaven. And so at the appearing of Christ, some will be in shock and some will be in awe. Which will you be? Are you coming to him? Are you part of his people? My friends, I know that we live in tough times and the journey isn't fun right now. Which reminds me of my dog Remy, who I took up north, the opposite of verse six, flee the land of the north. I went to the land of the north for a Sabbath rest and to hunt upland birds. And the whole time in the car, for the four hour trip, Remy hid under the seat as he was scared of the big trucks. In his canine mind, he's passing through the valley of the shadow of death. And he feared evil. However, as soon as we arrived in the woods, Remy jumped out of the van with pure delight because he was at home in the woods. See, he was born up in the woods in a cabin. Someday, we will be home too. And we will be with our God who conquers our enemies and will occupy our lives forever as we dwell with him. Return to God who will liberate and occupy you forever and ever.